Silas. Everybody, welcome to Renewal Church. If we haven't yet met, my name is Pastor Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal. We're glad that you're joining us this morning on this rainy Sunday morning. And uh, yeah, I, along with John, I'm also excited that uh, Miroslav Wolf is coming to University of Penn. I, I don't know if you remember, last, a few Sundays ago when I preached, I told his story and quoted from him, Miroslav Wolf, the Croatian uh, theologian who's coming to Penn. And immediately afterwards, some of our Penn students came up, you'll never believe this, Miroslav Wolf is coming to Penn in just a couple of weeks. We'd love for Renewal to invite everybody to come out and, and hear what he has to say as he dialogues with this unbeliever. Um, so again, yeah, along with John, I encourage everybody to go out and, and hear uh, Professor Wolf as he inter- interacts and engages those who don't yet believe. Uh, well, this morning, I'm a little nervous because yesterday I was umpiring uh, for my son's Little League uh, team, and I did a lot of squatting during that, and so my hamstrings and my calves are so sore right now that if I fall over in cramping, some of you up front are going to have to run up and pull my legs out so that I can loosen up, okay? So just be ready to come up and help me out, okay? I see uh, a few of you nodding. So, okay, we should be good. Uh, This morning, we are starting out a new uh, sermon series, and it's just a short sermon series for the Easter season, and this sermon series is going to be all about hope. Uh, We'll have a few sermons that all point us to the the hope that Jesus brings to different kinds of people uh, during this season that is really a season that is all about hope. Easter is Uh, the season where we Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that his resurrection brings. Uh, So this morning in particular, we're going to think about what hope means in the midst of failure. And we're going to look at maybe, arguably, the most well-known moment of failure in all of Scripture. We all know what failure feels like, and our story today points us to what Jesus thinks of failures like you and me. So with that in mind, would you take just a moment and pray with me as we invite God's Spirit to be with us here this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning as we come to your word. Uh, Lord, may we understand it and apply it to your lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand it well and to apply it well. Lord, when we fail to keep your law, point us again to your son Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. Lord, we ask again that, that in everything that we hear this morning that we would know how to put it into practice in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So a few years ago, I was uh, reading this fascinating article written by a historian and author named uh, Cody Delastrati. And Delastrati is a historian of early American history with a special emphasis on uh, Benjamin Franklin. And he tells the story, little known story of when Benjamin Franklin was a young man. On October 11th, 1726, Uh, Benjamin Franklin stepped off a large boat and he breathed in the fine Philadelphia air. 
And after spending two years in London, it actually did seem like a breath of fresh air to him. London at the time was more smog congested. And he was in London learning the printing trade. And he had crossed back over the Atlantic on a 12-week-long uh, voyage that had left him nauseated and also longing for uh, the conveniences of America. Within three years of stepping off that boat, Franklin would be publishing the Pennsylvania Gazette, uh, the popular uh, daily newspaper, and then followed by his uh, well-known Poor Richard's Almanac. So he's still a young man, but on that October day when he was 20 years old, he got off the boat and he had an, an idea that struck him as this kind of new chapter in his life in America was beginning. And so he scurried off to his room to find his quill and pen and bottle of red ink to begin writing what had struck him as he stepped off that boat. And with his pen and ink, he put together a chart. And on the chart were the days of the week, Monday through Sunday at the top. And then on the side, he listed 13 virtues that he saw as important virtues for all people to have. And he wanted to test his personal growth. He writes, I conceived of the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection, Franklin wrote in his autobiography. He said, I wish to live without committing any fault at any time and to conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. The virtues that he listed included temperance, silence, and he meant like controlling your tongue, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. Franklin quickly found that he was less than perfect. His chart became filled with all his failures. On the first Sunday of his exercise, he twice betrayed the virtue of controlling his tongue, and once his virtue of order. The following day, he violated controlling the tongue again and, and order yet again, and then also failed to be frugal, spent more money than he wanted to spend. Tuesday saw the same breaches of virtue as well as falling on resolution. Throughout the next week and the following week after that, Franklin would betray all 13 of his moral virtues that he wanted to follow, and most dubiously, that of chastity. This was not a new problem for Franklin. He was known for his indiscretions sexually and his frequent affairs. What Franklin began to learn was that attempting total perfection was futile. It is what we all learn at some point. After years of striving for, for perfection, he kept his chart up for years. Franklin eventually gave up on keeping those virtue charts. He noted that the single fault beyond all his other faults was pride, even thinking that he could arrive at moral perfection. He writes again, in reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. He continues, disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, and it is still alive. Even if I, can, even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud in my humility. So, if Benjamin Franklin was right, if it is true that chasing moral perfection 
is a fool's errand. If that's true, that we are all going to fail in this life over and over again, if that's true, that pride will plague the very best of us, even in our humility, what hope can we have? We're going to get at that question this morning. How can we have hope in the midst of our failures? By examining the life of one of the 12 disciples, a man named Peter, a man who failed spectacularly. And we'll walk through uh, Peter's life in three main points. First, Peter's calling. Second, Peter's failure. And finally, third, Peter's restoration. So we'll start off by looking at Peter's calling. You may or may not remember, but Peter, the apostle and disciple of Jesus, before he became one of the most well-known leaders and pastors in the early church, was just a simple fisherman. He lived in a small town called Capernaum that was set off on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. His days were filled with fishing and mending nets and upkeeping the fishing boat and taking the, the morning catch to the market. And he would do this same process over and over again. His days would have been very redundant. And we read in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, at the very beginning, Jesus is beginning his public ministry by going to the region of Galilee. And he first goes to his hometown in northern Israel. And he goes from his hometown and he moved to Capernaum, the, the town where Peter lived. And, and, it's, and the scriptures tell us that Jesus lives there for a time. And according to Matthew, this is where Jesus first began to preach and teach regularly in Capernaum. One day, while Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two fishermen who were casting their nets out into the water. And they were Peter and Peter's brother, Andrew. Jesus says to these two fishermen that he comes across in Matthew 4, verse 19, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, Peter and his, and his brother Andrew threw away their nets and immediately began to follow Jesus. There was no hesitation, no reservations about leaving the only life that they had ever known, the only life that they had done repeatedly over and over again, leaving their nets, leaving their expensive boat behind. They left it all and they followed Jesus. The great potential of Peter is hinted at throughout all the Gospels. He's always the, the first listed among the 12 disciples of Jesus. Whenever they are listed in the Bible, he, along with James and John, uh, become a, a very close connection of three people who are very close with Jesus, who show up at very important moments in Jesus' life, like the, the transfiguration. While the other disciples were kept at a distance, Peter, James, and John were brought in close to Jesus. And Peter becomes the de facto spokesperson for the disciples, and he is often the first person to speak up when Jesus asks questions. He comes across as a bold man with lots of ideas and lots of courage. He's a leader. And so that brings us to our scripture passage this morning that Silas read earlier in Matthew chapter 26. Our passage 
this morning. Now it brings us to the end of Jesus' public ministry. At the beginning, he calls Peter and Andrew to follow him. Now we're at the end of his public ministry, and he has brought the disciples a long way, and they're now in Jerusalem, in the capital of Israel. And Jesus has told his friends that the Son of Man will be delivered and crucified, but nobody seems to be listening to him. They seem to be having very selective hearing. They only hear what they want to hear from Jesus. The night of the Passover, after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper for the first time, he then predicts that Peter's great failure will happen soon. Look with me again at those first few verses in, that Silas read in, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 35. And when they had sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of, because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three, three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. I will never fall away, Peter says. Even if I must die, I will die with you. I will not deny you, Jesus. You hear the passion and the conviction in Peter's voice. And maybe it reminds some of you all of the passion and conviction of your early days in following Jesus, those days and months after you first became a Christian and that walk with Jesus was new and fresh and exciting. Oftentimes when people first become Christians, especially if they convert in times like high school or college, there's a real, a very real excitement and commitment to Jesus, a, a passionate feeling of I will do anything for you, Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's right and good to feel excitement when you first Find out the, the truth about Jesus when you first become a Christian. And God uses that kind of early Christian passion for his own purposes, oftentimes in, in mighty ways in evangelism as people are excited about their faith. Unfortunately, that early excitement is often not so rooted in Jesus and what he has done, but it can be what we think we can do for Jesus. God is surely, now that I'm excited and into Jesus, God is surely calling me to do great things for Jesus. If you're a Christian here this morning, think back to your early days in the faith or times that you've been really excited about Jesus. Now really think, was I more excited about what Jesus did for me or what I could do for Jesus? Peter's statements to Jesus, uh, calling out how he would never betray him, they were statements that were ultimately rooted in Peter's pride. They were all about him. I will never fall away. I will, I will die for you. I will not deny you. It was all about what he was going to do for Jesus, not about what Jesus was doing for him. 
We didn't read this section this morning, but a a few verses down in verses 51 through 56, Peter does indeed show that he is willing to at least fight for Jesus when the mob comes to arrest Jesus along with the chief priests and elders. Peter pulls out his sword and dramatically cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And Jesus immediately tells Peter, no, 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 put away your sword. Put away your sword. And so Peter puts away the sword, and in another gospel, Jesus uh, takes the ear and and heals the, the man who had his ear cut off by Peter. Jesus, you can hear, just kind of Uh, shaking his head as we read Jesus' response after uh, Peter cuts the man's ear off. Jesus says, don't you know that I could call my father and 12 legions of angels would be immediately here by my side to protect me if I wanted to do that? Peter, this is happening so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. What becomes clear in the next few verses is that exactly what Jesus had been telling them all along was coming true, that he was going to suffer and die. While cutting off the guy's ear may have been a little embarrassing to Peter and getting reprimanded by Jesus, that wasn't his great failure. That was yet to come. And that's what we turn to in our second point this morning, Peter's great failure in verses 69 through 75. Peter's great failure was denying Jesus three times after Jesus told him that was exactly what was going to happen. After Peter promised Jesus that he would never deny him, Peter denies he knows Jesus three times. Look with me again at those verses in 69 through 75. I'll read them again. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I did not know what you mean. And when he went in out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And, Jesus remembered the say, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And he went out and wept bitterly. You see, Peter was all about following Jesus if it meant the glory of political revolution. He was willing to pull out the sword and fight for Jesus to start a rebellion that in his mind would set Jesus on the throne to be the the Jewish Messiah that would finally kick the Romans out of Israel and give them back their political power. But when it became clear that Jesus was looking for a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom of self-sacrifice, a kingdom where the Messiah would go to the cross, that's when Peter changed his mind. That's when Peter started to deny that he even knew Jesus. He didn't want to be part of that kind of kingdom. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Can you imagine the kind of devastation that this man, Peter, who was a bold leader, a gifted and committed and passionate person, a man who thought he had it all figured out, how he must have felt when he failed Jesus, his Savior, miserably 
Can you relate to this? Thinking you had this Christianity thing all figured out and then to just fall flat on your face. I know I can relate to this. Many of you know that in my last pastoral position, uh, I I was a, a church planter in northwest Philadelphia in the neighborhoods of Mount Airy and Germantown. I had put in years of study of God's word, years of being mentored in the local church. I had put in years of study so I could be ordained in our denomination. All this life experience and ministry preparation, and it seemed like it was finally time back in 2015 or late 2014 to step out and to launch this new church plant with me as the planting pastor. Early on, it seemed like things were going well with the church plant. We were growing. It seemed like people were stepping up and buying into the vision and growing in their faith. I was getting used to preaching on a regular basis. It was an incredibly difficult time. Church planting is no easy business to get that church plant off the ground, but we did it. We got the church plant going. But by about the two and a half year mark, we started to lose momentum. Volunteers were getting tired and worn out. Almost everyone in the church plant were parents of young children, and that made children's ministry on Sunday morning very difficult. Uh, People, including myself at this time, uh, often like the idea of church planting much more than they like the reality of church planting. And so we started to lose people to other more established churches. No great scandal, but just people who were worn out and tired. I vividly remember one winter Sunday where the sanctuary was so cold we could uh, see each other's breath as we were preaching. The musicians' hands were shaking as they tried to play the guitars. We were having a hard time getting through that worship service, and to make matters worse, there was only about 15 people in the worship service. I remember after that service was over, everybody left and just breaking down and crying, just weeping. By the fall of 2017, it was clear to me that our church plant was done. So we closed it down. It came and it went. I felt like a miserable failure. Can you relate to this? Can you relate to feeling like a failure before God? Even while you were trying your very best to serve God, Peter was literally a failure before the Son of God, before God in flesh. Here's my contention this morning. Here is what I hold on to with my own failure as a pastor, with my continued failures as a pastor. Sometimes God allows us to fail spectacularly because he knows we need it. I think Peter needed to fall flat on his face and deny Jesus three times. I think he needed to learn some humility. I think I needed to learn that the church was not all about me. It's not about me holding things together with my own strength and stubbornness. You see, God would rather us be humble and faithful than successful and prideful every time. Every time. 
Failure can open our eyes to our own sinfulness, our own self-sufficiency, our own pridefulness. And on, on the opposite end, sometimes failure can make us scared and feel fearful and hard and disappointed and angry when you fail. And we will all fail, despite what Benjamin Franklin thought as a 20-year-old. When you fail, how do you respond? Are you open to the possibility that Jesus is working something in your malformed soul, that he's doing something to the heart. So what happened in Peter's life? What happened to him after he was left weeping in that courtyard, after he had denied Jesus three times, after he had failed so miserably? That brings us to our third point this morning, Peter's restoration. As we know, Jesus was crucified and died. We will celebrate Easter in two weeks. We will celebrate the fact that on the third day after his death, Jesus rose from the grave victorious over death and sin. Multiple times after Jesus' resurrection, but before his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he appears to the disciples, his friends. And there is one particularly moving account of his appearing to his friends and disciples that I want us to turn to right now. If you have your Bibles, you can go there with me. It's John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, Peter and a few of the other disciples are again fishing at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, John calls it the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same name for the same lake. And so they're there at the Sea of Galilee, and Peter and a few of the other disciples are fishing again, and Jesus calls out from the shore, and he miraculously helps the fishermen catch some fish. And Peter, being Peter, he realizes that it was Jesus who was on the shore, and he gets excited, and, he, and Scripture tells us that he throws himself in the water. He dives right into the water, and he swims up to the shore as fast as he can so he can meet Jesus. And Jesus sat and ate breakfast, a breakfast of fish and bread with the disciples. And after breakfast, he turns to Peter and he specifically starts to talk with him. Let's read what Jesus says to Peter after his failure. This is John 21. We're going to look at verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, Follow me. What's Jesus up to here? 
Jesus is beautifully restoring Peter. Jesus is telling him, you will spend the rest of your days loving me and feeding my sheep. You will spend the rest of my day, your days caring for people. And when Peter's days were to come to an end, he would again have the opportunity to, instead of denying Jesus, to following Jesus all the way to the cross. He's reminding Peter of his original calling probably three years before when he said, follow me, and Peter threw away his nets and followed him. He's reminding him again, continue to follow me, Peter. Jesus is beautifully restoring Peter. Jesus here is also foretelling Peter's future. Peter would go on to be a pastor in the early church, one of the most well-known figures in the early church. And it seems Peter led as a central figure and pastor for almost 30 years following the death of Jesus. And most scholars and historians agree that Peter was crucified in around 64 AD during the persecution from the Roman emperor Nero. So Peter got to live out the rest of his days following Jesus, caring for Jesus' sheep, and ultimately being crucified at the cross, following Jesus all the way there. So what do we make of all this? How can we find hope in the midst of failure? We, like Peter, can have hope in the middle of our own failures because of Jesus. He redeems failure. It's what he does. Jesus redeems people who fail. The failure doesn't make you a failure as a person. The failure, failure prepares you for life with Jesus. Failure, when seen through the lens of Jesus and the cross, tempers our pride, our arrogance, and our self-reliance. Failure prepares us for humble service. It moves us to a posture of helplessness, a person in need of Jesus, a person who can humbly love others and humbly follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Look, if you find yourself here this morning, and for one reason or another, you are feeling like a failure this morning, I encourage you, don't feel, to, don't feel like you need to spend today beating yourself up. Don't spend the Lord's day thinking about yourself at all, in fact. I encourage you to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. The only person who was ever perfect who walked this earth was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was perfect for us on our behalf because we could never be perfect. What hope and failure looks like is a realization that we are helpless fallen creatures and we are in need of a perfect savior. Someone who could actually be perfect. If you're here this morning and you don't know this perfect Jesus, if you're here and you know that you're not a Christian, the invitation for you is to admit that you aren't perfect to quit the impossible task of trying to save yourself through your own good works, to stop trying to save yourself by being perfect. 
or even just by being better than the next person. That will never work. You need Jesus. The invitation is to believe in Jesus, who was both God and man, who lived the perfect life to save you from all your sins and your failures. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will be saved. And this is true for all of us here this morning, whether you're a non-believer or you are a Christian here this morning, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And so now we can turn to him and call out to him because he is mighty to save us. Those who fail can rest in Jesus who is perfect on our behalf. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me?